Howdy do, everybody! This is David Sanchez, and this is episode four of the Riffs or Die podcast for October 13, 2020. Howdy, hiya, adios, hello, goodbye. I'm scared. I apologize that this episode is so incredibly late. I think every once in a while this kind of thing is going to happen, especially if and when touring comes back. But I just spent the better part of a week in Washington State. I went out there to hang out with a couple of friends and um, enjoy the ocean and the woods. It's a really, really beautiful area, especially the drive. I flew into Portland, and the drive from Portland to Astoria, Oregon, on Highway 26 was absolutely jaw-droppingly gorgeous. If any of you get the chance, if you ever have to, drive from like Portland up to Astoria, instead of taking the interstate, if you take that Highway 26, you will not be disappointed. It was very, very cool. That whole part of the country is super beautiful. And to us, it's the Pacific Northwest but I guess to the Canadians, it'd be the Pacific Southwest. Right there on the Ring of Fire, there's tons of mountains and the oceans are all cool. It's not the kinds of beaches where you go to get a suntan and hang out in the heat. But um, there's a lot of fog. It's got a real spooky vibe to a lot of areas out there. But it's absolutely beautiful. Everything's super green. Obviously, everything's super green and beautiful and lush like that at the price of having all of that rain all the time. I don't think personally that I could live out there just because I'm so used to sun and not having a lot of moisture. Being from Denver, this is basically like a high desert. Having that rain would be great right now. A ton of this state is on fire right now. And uh, I hope that it rains or snows or something changes soon because there's a lot of wildlife getting destroyed, a lot of people's homes. Some people probably are not able to get evacuated. Really, really scary shit. So Washington and Oregon have it fairly made up there um, right next to the coast because fire is not really too much of a worry. But you do have the doom and gloom skies at all times, which we don't really have here in Denver. We get a lot of sun. Anyways, let's dive into what this episode is going to be about. In this one, I did an interview with a buddy of mine who I've toured with. He was actually our front of house sound guy on the Killthrax tour, where we were out with Anthrax and Killswitch Engage. And he's a guy who has been in the industry for a very long time. He's done sound for tons of bands that you've heard of, including James Brown, Prince, Slayer, Megadeth, Van Halen, and uh, we had a really good conversation, and we covered his origins as a sound engineer and talked a little bit about the road and what things used to be like back in the day. Before we get into this interview, I want to remind you guys that if you want to support this podcast further than just listening or telling your friends, which are both greatly appreciated, 
you can go to patreon.com slash riffs or die and subscribe as a member. You'll get access to bonus podcasts. You'll get discounts for the web store and you can sign up to get some exclusive merch items, including the first 50 people that sign up for the Patreon will get a hand-signed, hand-numbered, holographic, backstage pass laminate. These things are almost sold out. There's only about 10 left as I'm speaking right now. So jump on that before they're all gone. They came out really great, and I hope that you guys will enjoy them. I'm sending them out with a handful of stickers, and for people that sign up at the $10 level or higher, you're also going to get a poster. At the $25 level, you get a signed poster. And at the $50 level, you can get handwritten lyrics of any Havoc song of your choosing or a handwritten letter. People who sign up at the $10 level or higher will also get access to do a Zoom hangout once a month where you guys can hang out and ask me any questions that you want in real time. Since the last episode, we've had quite a few people sign up for the Patreon. And before we dive into this interview, I got to give a shout out to the people that signed up at $25 and higher. A huge thank you to Juliet Lalouel, Chris Fall, Murray Reed, Facundo Exposito, Eddie Inahosa, and Derek Pincomb. Thank you all so much for signing up. You guys are the best. You're helping to keep my poor head above water during this time of no touring, no work, no rock and roll shows, no fun. I've been working on some more mixing stuff lately, and I've got some more mixing projects coming up that I need to start working on, but I'm not going to get to those until after my little trip here to Washington is done. So on the next episode, I'm hoping that I can give you guys an update of how that was. And luckily, I'm able to fly in an airplane back to Colorado. People used to have to do that trip from Washington to Colorado on foot, and it wasn't very long ago. We're super spoiled and super lucky to live when and where we do. So just for a little bit of context here, in the interview with my buddy Doug Short, he does bring up a man named Willie G. Willie G is a legendary guitar tech. He's worked for Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax, Testament, Exodus, Lamb of God, you name it. He's done it. And there's a story about Willie G in this episode. So now you have a little bit of context for that story when it does pop up in the interview. If you want to write in any questions, concerns, ask for advice, or whatever you want to talk about, please send that note to podcast at riftsordie.com. One thing that I would really love to start getting from you guys is for you to write in with the best advice you ever heard, like the wisest thing you ever heard in your life. I would love to start incorporating that stuff into every episode so that maybe after listening to all my nonsense, at the end of every episode, we can make the world a little bit smarter and maybe give some new ideas and positive reinforcement to the people listening to this thing. I often ask people 
if they could give one piece of advice to future generations or, you know, tell it to the whole world, what would they want to say to the world? Let me know if you guys have any wisdom to share, whether it's firsthand or you heard it from someone else. But please write that stuff in because we can try to make the world a little wiser as we're listening to this podcast that covers a broad variety of topics. Right in. I want to hear it! Well, that's about it for the foreword on this episode. I hope you guys enjoy this interview. I really enjoyed talking to this guy, and I think you'll really dig this conversation. So without further ado, please welcome Doug Short. Why don't we start by going down the list of some of the stuff that's on your resume, some of the bands you've worked for? Well, you know, in the 90s, I started out doing a lot of Motown stuff. You know, the Ten Patients, the Tops, Prince, James Brown, Donna Summer, and, you know, a few others. Without my resume in front of me, I don't even remember. (laughs) Fair enough. Yep. And I think only half of them are alive anyhow. A big thing that I'd like to know, because even when we toured together on that Kill Thrax tour, I never really picked your brain about this but um like how did you get into audio how did you start oh i started i used to be a professional drummer and when i was out in la as a youngster trying to uh you know be a a big fish the only uh, recording hours i could get were between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. And I ended up hanging out with a lot of good recording engineers who would just let me sit back and watch. And basically what I learned how to do was apply technology to what my mind wanted to hear. Because, you know, back then it was all two-inch tape and... You know, they would just let me play the tracks, and I would play with it and play with it and play with it. And it's like, okay, that sucks. We'll rewind, and I would do it again. And that's how I accidentally became a sound engineer. So you learned in studio. Yes. And then uh, I became a live guy by accident. (laughs) Because uh, a band that was touring that I knew, their sound engineer got thrown in jail over a a parking violation that wasn't paid. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And just like, hey, Doug, do you know, you know what we sound like? Can you go out there and, you know, do this and do that? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'll give it a shot, you know. If everybody hates me, they'll just throw throw beers at me. And nobody actually threw beers at me, but they did buy them for me. That's good. That's what you want. How long yeah. how much experience did you have by that time? How many years or months had you been doing it? I was still a drummer at that point. It's just that everybody knew that I could tweak a console. Gotcha. So it, it you know, it was overlapping uh, careers is what I would call it. 
So I, I, you know, I went from one hobby to another to uh, nothingness right now. Yeah, we're all kind of in that same boat. Unfortunately, I think that guys like you and I are going to be hit harder than the average person from all this crap. The entertainment industries, none of us know when it's going to spring back. No, and especially at the level that you know, you and I are both used to. I mean, if we want to go do coffee shops for 10 people, sure, we can probably start work next week. But uh, I don't see any uh, benefits to that artistically or financially. Sure. Yeah, I can't imagine having a, a Slipknot show in a coffee shop. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they couldn't even get the kegs in. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what was that band, that first one that you did live sound for? Oh, geez. I'm trying to remember. It was a band out of Kansas City. I think they were called The Wild. It's a good name. Classic band name. Yeah, but it was spelled Y-L-D. And it wasn't Zach Wild. No. No, that would have been Pride and Glory. That would have been years later. <laughs> what year was that when you started uh, doing live front of house? I think that was 83 or 84. Okay, cool. So I know that like way back in the day, a lot of bands would have to bring their own PA to get a show off the ground. How was it in the early 80s? Did clubs have good PAs or would bands have to haul them in? Oh, no. Uh, bands brought in their own production i mean lights sound everything even even their own spotlights everybody was self-contained back then a lot more work and a lot more expense to go on the road yeah i mean and you know the, the successful bands back then you know actually had their own you know 53 foot trucks that they hauled it in and as road crew, not roadies, but road crew, <laughs> we were responsible for getting that in and out every day. And sometimes the clubs wouldn't open until two, you know, in the afternoon. So sometimes sound checks were as late as six or seven, which would be, you know, about an hour before showtime. Wow. And back then as well, we'd also, you know, perform between, you know, 8 or 9 p.m. until 2 a.m. Holy and shit. Then, and then take the stuff out. Yeah, 5.45 minute sets back then was the real deal. That's what we did. Yeah, that's super gnarly. Nowadays, you got, you know, five bands on a bill and everybody's doing a half an hour except the last band. Yeah, and then of course there's you know they only allot a, a ten minute changeover to get you know a full on drum kit and guitar rigs off the deck. Oh yeah, changeover times are crucial, especially on like a big show. Yeah, I remember you know doing that with you. It's like we had it to a science though. Yeah, we try to get that stuff off stage as soon as humanly possible so that no one can yell at us for uh, being slow. No. And, and eating up their stage time. Yep. 
And everybody on that tour is very appreciative of the fact that we were smooth and self-contained. Yeah, you got to be. It's got to be like a well-oiled machine at that point. You can't be stepping on anybody's toes, especially when uh, the other bands have the capability to kick you off the tour if you're fucking up too much. Well, if you fuck up at all. (laughs) Good point. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, there's a very thin line, David. <laughs> we we both know uh, where that comes from. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so you worked with a bunch of Motown bands back in the day. Uh, yeah. What era were you working with the Temptations? That was early '80s for sure, and they were doing kind of like the casino circuit. Okay, cool. And uh, I was house tech at a lot of the casinos in the midwest back then and you know bands like them were just like oh doug's there okay cool we won't bring our guy james brown was the same way and that's what actually led to me working with prince was the james brown connection yeah in in what capacity did you work with james brown front of house insane uh, obviously that dude's like notorious for being hard to work with. No, actually he was very cool to me. Cause you weren't uh, in his band. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that was it. But, uh, what was really cool about James was, you know, we used DAP machines back then. Of course he would, uh, have me record every show on DAT. We would do a four or five hour rehearsal every day. Holy shit. Every day? Yeah, every day. Oh, my God. For a two-hour show. And, man, he uh, he was a taskmaster. You know, I mean, he just, he made you work for it, bro. But what was really cool about him was uh, once the show was done, his assistant, which I think was Steve, a very very polite human being would come get the dat tape. And then of course, you know, while I was tearing down the gear would come back two hours later after James listened to the tape and he would give me the, what we call the $200 handshaking because Mr. Brown was very happy with this. <laughs> so on top of getting, you know, paid by the casino or venue, James had always tipped me like 200 bucks. Nice. And what year was that in? Like roughly? Oh, that probably uh, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, 200 bucks back then was like 350 bucks today. Yeah. It's a pretty no, good, it was, pretty it was, good it little was tip. Good bread. Yeah. That's super cool. Uh, everybody loves James Brown. I mean, I, I'd be hard pressed to find anybody that doesn't like James Brown music. Yep. If you don't like James Brown or like Stevie Wonder, there's something very suspect about you. Uh, yes, there's definitely <laughs> a chromosome missing in your soul. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, that dude's a fucking legend, but also a legendary kook. I mean, there's some of the stories about him getting in trouble with the law and all that kind of shit. That's just pretty insane uh, on, yeah, pap- on I- paper. <laughs> Yeah, I 
I don't think I was around the James Brown that got in trouble much. <laughs> That's but good. What was cool about him, though, I mean, like I said, he was a you know taskmaster. Everything was improv on him. What do you mean? Uh, the arrangements. Mm. The set list was not a set list. It was an outline of a show. And he would change it up all the time. And, of course, sometimes you know he would feel like, it's like, hey, I want a sax solo right now. Or I want a guitar solo right now. Or this, or keyboards, or whatever. Yeah. And if you weren't paying attention to James, when he looked at you and gave you the sign that it was your time, and you weren't paying attention, he would fine you. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it'd be, and he was on the mic, he'd be 10, 20, 30, 40, $50, motherfucker. Five. <laughs> yeah, I've seen videos of him uh, docking people's pay on stage where yep. he, he's pointing at the person and he's like, I got you. I yep. got you. But he's not saying, I got you, like, because he's stoked on the music. He's saying, like, I got you, motherfucker. I'm not paying you as much today because he fucked up. Well, and what was even funnier <laughs> about that was when you get fined for fucking up or not paying attention, Yeah, he didn't just dock it out of your pay. You had to take it out of your own pocket <laughs> and hand the cash to him at the end of the night. Oh, my God. Yeah, extra, yeah. extra humiliation. Well, if, if you want to call it that, I think that's just extra education. <laughs> <laughs> From the school of James Brown. Yep. Amazing. It, there's not too many guys like that. Not enough. Yeah, Not enough. Pretty wild. That dude had a career for, God, so long. What did he start? Early 60s? Late 50s? Uh, yeah, I think late 50s, man. Insane. Super long, lifelong career. But how, how did that turn in to working for the son of the queen, Prince? Well, Prince had a huge admiration for James. Oh, yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, th there are very similar work ethics involved. Mm -hmm. And uh, Prince would come to those casino shows in Minnesota and watch James incognito. <laughs> and uh, strangely enough, you know, this skinny little white guy was mixing these shows. And he goes... I want that guy to work for me. And, you know, that's kind of how it happened. But it was, it was funny because I was already working at Paisley Park as an underling intern wiring stuff in the basement. Were you wiring like uh, analog hardware units or were you making cables or what were you doing down there? All of the above. Okay, cool. I was already his employee. And he just didn't realize that I was actually a sound engineer. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, how'd you even get your foot in the door at Prince's studio in uh, in Minnesota? That seems like a pretty hard job to get. It was. And I tried and tried and tried for years. And then finally a friend of mine who knew that, you know, I could do 
cabling and such brought me in as an intern. Mm. I think I made about 60 bucks a day back then in 1994. And I would go mix clubs at night around St. Paul and Minneapolis. That ain't too bad. Um, you know, especially to work in such an exclusive environment for a, a legendary dude. And that studio had to be top of the art, like state of the art, super nice. Am I right? Oh, you're definitely not incorrect. And there actually, there was three studios there and a soundstage. Did they ever have shows in there? Yes. Awesome. Yeah, the soundstage was, I, I can't remember the dimensions, but it was probably equivalent to a 15,000 square foot warehouse. Enormous. Yeah. And it had a basketball court. <laughs> of course it did. Yeah. For him to, and Rick James to play each other on. <laughs> you know, that that whole skit from whatever show it was is yeah. no joke. Prince was probably, I mean, in in all honesty, I think he was only like four foot ten. <laughs> but he could do a layback over anybody seven feet tall. A layup? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that Chappelle show skit is is legendary. And uh yeah, Charlie Murphy telling that story about how Prince whooped their ass. Oh yeah. And then made everybody pancakes. <laughs> I I was never around for the pancakes, but oh man. So what kind of consoles did they have in that studio? Uh Studio A had a big ass SSL and big West Lakes for monitors. Cool, cool. And what was really cool was the uh the drum room had uh a ceiling with microphones mounted on the ceiling four different ones well same mics four microphones on a moving ceiling and they could create natural reverb by moving the ceiling up and down oh cool so they could change the size of the drum room basically yeah wow just by moving a ceiling oh man and that's Blackbird so cool studios in nashville has the same feature that's got to be a super rare, though. What's that? That's got to be a super rare feature of a studio. No, it should be a everyday feature, actually. Because, <laughs> I mean, rather than adding reverb, why don't you just change the room? Yeah, that'd be amazing if you could do that anywhere. That's got to be yeah. very expensive to, to uh, manufacture, though. No, it really isn't. Well, do tell. Uh, you know, a ceiling's a ceiling. You know, they all cost the same amount of money. It's just uh, the hoist. You know, you get yourself a, a two-ton motor on four points of a ceiling on rails. That really doesn't cost anything compared to uh, any kind of a oh, loss for words here. Well, I mean, that's nothing compared to the console cost in that place. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that console you probably know, costs like half a million dollars. Uh, probably more. <laughs> I think that one was a million. 
Jesus Christ. How many channels was that SSL? I think she was 96. Wow. That's an enormous board. Yeah. And it was, it was a three-section one. You had a main section in the middle and then two wings. Holy crap. And you got to work on that? I got to play with her. I, I definitely wired her. That's very cool. Super, super cool. And then did you ever wind up going on the road with Prince or did you just work in the studio? I went out on the Gold Experience Tour. And he started off wanting to mix himself from stage because he was just so pissed off with sound engineers. Sure. That he kind of gave up on them. So we had an ATI Paragon on stage that he mixed his own monitors and front of house from. Insane. Yep. And it was in this thing called the womb. The womb? The hell's the The womb? The womb. Yeah, it, it's a it was a set piece that looked like a mm, giant vagina. Actually, <laughs> you'll you'll have to. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm definitely going to have to look. Oh yeah, that's definitely yeah. getting looked up. But yeah, it was definitely a, a large vaginal cavity that a full man could walk into. <laughs> How prince of him? Well, exactly. <laughs> But uh, I was snuck out there by the production and tour manager just to make sure that, A, the console would get fixed every day because every time it moved, it would break. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, It was just not – it was a great sounding desk. And that was the first desk, actually, that had onboard – compressors and gates on every channel Mm, yeah that's huge yeah but it was heavy and the frame was not sturdy and the power supplies would often catch fire holy shit just getting too hot or was there some sort of electronic bug in the uh the schematics mainly heat and uh my primary job on that tour was to repair the ati every day Wow. And then I I started creeping into uh, the front of house position. <laughs> Doing like the Bugs Bunny thing with your foot? Yeah. <laughs> I'll be very, very quiet. <laughs> I mean, repairing those consoles, though, is a super crucial job. Without that console, that show isn't happening. So, No, and, and back then, the ATI Paragon was a very rare, expensive console. It wasn't like, oh, shit, this one's broken. We'll just get one in England. No, (laughs) you won't. Right. Yeah, you you were a totally vital piece of the touring crew. Yep, but hidden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of touring crew, it's like a thankless job. You know, it's pretty rare that people come up and, you know, even if they love the sound for the night and you're doing front of house, it's pretty rare that someone will come up and tell you, you know? No, usually when they come up to front of house, they go, hey, man, can I have a set list? Right. Yeah, they're there to uh, ask you for some sort of merch or, or whatever that they can take home or 
to tell you that you're doing something wrong. It's rare that they're coming up to tell you accolades. No, it, it's not usually a complimentary situation. And, and, <laughs> right. was, and here's, a, here's an even funnier story for you. Uh, when I was with Megadeth, I didn't use a set list because Dave would text it to me before showtime. Right, so all the fans that want one are boned. Well, they weren't so much boned. I would just tell them, it's like, I don't use a set list. Dave texts this to me. And uh, they go, oh, man, can you can you text it to me? It's like, no, because it's got <laughs> Dave's number on it. And then they go, oh, well, you know what? You suck anyway. <laughs> and I would I would see it on media. I would get bashed from the people that didn't get their set list fix. And you can ask Willie G about that too. Oh yeah, Willie gets it all the time, I'm sure. He's right up there on stage with all the front row people hanging out, lingering, trying to get a pick or a set list. Yep. I have a really good story about Willie and I in South America. Oh yeah. Where were you? Uh I th- we were in Brazil somewhere. Okay. But uh, the funny thing was, it's like everybody would always hit Willie G up for picks. So we pull up to the hotel, and I'm the first guy out of the van from the airport. And I just want to check in and go to sleep because I've been flying like 19 hours or something. And uh, (laughs) I totally throw – I threw him under the bus. (laughs) I think you told me this one. Yeah, I remember. But – you got to finish yeah, it for it the listeners. Like, yeah. It's like people are hitting me for picks. I'm like, I'm just a sound guy. I go, Willie G has all the picks. That's him right there. So <laughs> <laughs> they all mobbed him and Fred Koala while I snuck right by them and managed to check into my room. <laughs> Those guys checked in the room 90 minutes later than I did, and they hated me. Oh, day. yeah. I'm sure they wanted your head on a stick. <laughs> I threw the guitar techs under the bus. Yeah, and the fans down Latin America are, are uh, pretty ravenous for picks and any item they can get their hands on because bands hardly ever go down there. So they're starving for shows and to see the bands that they like. And uh, anytime a band goes down there, it may be the last time it ever happens. So I understand why fans are kind of ape go ape shit down there. No, I, I, I understand them too. It's just, you know, that was my escape route that day. (laughs) (laughs) What a dick. I know. Totally a dick move. (laughs) You live in Canada. You're not supposed to be a dick. That's the stereotype. Canadians know, have the I've, best I've only stereotype. Been in Canada 14 years. I've been an American for, you know, 58 years. Jesus Christ. How old are you, Doug? 58. Oh, okay. Yeah. But <laughs> I was 14. adding the 14 to the 58. It was like, dude, you don't no, look no, that old. No, I'm not, I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm not even that grumpy. <laughs> Yet. Uh, you know, hey, there's days. But anyhow. <laughs> Man, you've worked for so many cool bands. All the Motown dudes, James Brown, Prince, Megadeth. Uh, what are some of the other rock bands that you worked for? Or metal bands? Well, there were, you know, I've 
done monitors for Slayer on and off since, what, 2000, I think, up until 06. Okay. But, but on and off. Sure. And I tell you what, for everybody thinking they're, you know, Satan's house band, they're the nicest dudes in the world. <laughs> yeah, we've toured with Lombardo a couple times. Um, yeah. When he was playing drums for Suicidal. Yes. Super nice guy. Lombardo is a, an, an amazing sweetheart. And when I started with them was when he came back. Ah, cool. Yeah. That's killer. And, yeah, he and I got along great because, you know, as a former drummer, I actually know how drums are supposed to sound. Right. And him and I never had, I mean, the Slayer stage is really loud. It's not uh, symphonic, if you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah, it's just bludgeoning. Yeah. And if the side fills, when Dave goes into a double bass thing, the side fills are right if it rattles your eyeballs and blurs your vision. Yes. A lot of sub. Yeah. A lot of, actually a lot of 80 hertz, not the really, really low stuff, but the the chest pounding stuff. Yeah. For kick drums, I always find that somewhere in between like 60 and 80 is a sweet spot for my ear. Mm-hmm. Gets the skeleton shaking. Yeah. And speaking of monitors, um, sorry to go back a little bit here, but didn't you tell me a long time ago that when uh, Prince was doing monitors in front of house um, from the stage, wouldn't he get front of house pumped onto the stage so that he could hear what the front of house guy was doing with the uh, vocal effects and stuff like that? Yes, he did. And that's what he did with the side fills. Yeah, that's a trip. That's not normal. That That's uh, the first time I've ever heard of anybody doing that. It's uh, It actually should be a common practice. That For, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. But yeah, no, our side fills were humongous. <laughs> like a whole new PA system. No, it was. It was like one quarter of the whole rig. Holy shit. <laughs> it's beefy. Epic. No, it was cool, though. I mean, and his reasoning is absolutely perfect. Yeah, you want to be able to hear what the guy you're paying to make you sound good out front is doing. Well, yeah. And especially back then, because he was mixing himself quote, quote, mm-hmm. he wanted to hear what was going on. And he would go to that console back in the womb and change it if the side fills weren't what he thought they should be. Right. So was it like a duplicate mix where the front of house guy and Prince had control of it? Or like was it linked together or was it totally independent? Or or is this before he trusted a, a front of house guy to do anything? Before. Before the trust happened. Okay, gotcha. And uh, you said you were working for that dude from like the late 80s? Oh, Prince? Yeah. No, mid-90s. Okay, from the mid-90s until uh, 
how long were you doing that? On and off, probably 10 years, but... Holy shit. Cool. No, it was very sporadic, though. Prince doesn't really have touring engineers for a very long time. Sure. I can imagine a guy like that's got very, very high standards and is very particular about everything. No, as he should be. He's a, he's a freaking genius. And I can tell you, you know, straight up, he's a better engineer than most of us and always would have been. I believe that. You know, I mean, look at his guitar playing. No, oh, he's a phenomenal guitar player and drummer, key player, singer, bass. And that dude did everything. Mm-hmm. Super rare type of uh, musician. Yep. So it's not surprising at all that he would be an excellent engineer. That dude knows what he wants to sound like. Yeah, and it's funny. It's like, you know, even during some of the sound checks, when I actually finally migrated to front of house or finagled or snuck my way in, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. he would stand behind me and go, no, that's not right. You know, I was like, mm, okay. Like at front of house while the band yeah. was playing or yeah. something? Uh-huh. Okay. And he would reach underneath my arm, and he he would just, like, tweak one thing. And I would just go, oh, fuck. He's so fucking right. So he would never uh, do that and, and make a tweak and it got worse? No, never. That's very cool. Yeah. No, you know, pure genius, man. Absolutely. Yeah, musicianship, conceptually, vocally, dude's an all-around badass. But you've worked for a bunch of them, man. It's super cool, and that's why I wanted to talk to you, because, I mean, you've just worked with so many legendary, epic artists and uh, when I think of guys that I know that I could talk to that have all the good stories and have worked for all the all the big names, you're like the first audio guy I think of. Well, there's there's better choices, but I'm flattered. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, no, I've been very blessed, David. I've you know what? I've always had really good clients, and I've I've never taken any tour. Just because it was money, I always agree to tours because it's like, hey, I can make this fucking band sound good. Yeah, and that's a big part of uh, why this job is fun. You know, I I do front of house at venues and the night of work is 20 times more fun when the band is actually good. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't feel like a job when you're basically in charge of... uh, making a great artist sound great. That's a that's a good time that you just happen to get paid for. It's a lot of responsibility though. If you, well, if you, I mean, you know, the the best thing we can do as sound engineers is be transparent. You just need to be like the conduit from the band to the the audience. Yeah, make it make it what they are. Right. Don't color it and 
course, don't fuck it up. You know, let it be what it is. Sure. Yeah, you want to just uh, make the connection between the band and the listener smaller. You want you want to make that uh, that bond tighter and make the the separation much smaller. But I did want to ask you if you had one piece of advice to give to future generations of people, a message to the world. You have one piece of advice to give them. What would you want to say? Respect. It's a good one-word answer. That's <laughs> one of the best I've heard. I tell you what, uh, I've not been the one of the greatest engineers on the planet, but I tell you what, I've held on to a lot of gigs long-term by being respectful to people and being nice. Of course. I mean, everybody loses their cool every once in a while on tour, but, you know... That's to be expected, but uh, you're not going to hold on to jobs very long, especially on tour, if you're an asshole. No, especially on tour. Yeah. I mean, that goes for any job, but touring is like hard enough without people being dicks. Um, you're in a different place every day. You don't have any of your comforts of home. You can't take a shit whenever you want. You're stinky. You don't sleep well. You don't eat well. And uh, it's a uh, it's exhausting takes a big toll on your body. I know every time I come home from tour, I'm beat. So it, it, it's hard enough. I, I say it all the time. Touring's hard enough without people being assholes. So exactly. And that's why, you know, respect is the word, you know, you have to acknowledge the fact that other humans are having the same struggles you are. And sometimes daily, you know, that may change. It may escalate. It may go down. But the fact is, everybody has the same struggles on tour. Yeah, you're all fighting for a common goal, and everybody's uncomfortable, you know? Yeah, if they want to be. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a choice how uh, miserable you are. But I'm just saying yeah. that you lacking and those comforts of home and stuff, everybody's in that same boat when you're on the road. Yeah. And, you know, it's all a choice. Absolutely. It's, it's how you address it. Yeah, I think life is more about uh, how you react to things that happen instead of about the things that happen. No, exactly. And that's, you know, that's always been my game plan. It's a good way to be, Dougie. Yeah, we had a really good time with you on that tour when we went out with Anthrax and Kill Switch. It was two two months in a bandwagon and uh, smelling each other's farts and telling each other jokes and having a good old time playing rock and roll shows, basically being glorified t-shirt salesmen. Yeah, it was it was nice mixing a band that pretty much annihilated the headliners. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, th- that that's Doug Short speaking, everybody, not me. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. Yeah, we had a really good time on that. I mean, it's it's kind of our goal, and this doesn't even relate to that tour, but just in general, like since I was a teenager, m- the mindset anytime I play a show is like, all right, the goal here is to try to make all the other bands look bad. You want to, uh, you want you want to show them up. It's it's competitive, even though it's friendly competition. The goal is to go out there and just fucking mop the place. 
No. I mean, why else would you do it? Yeah. And no, nobody's trying every, to go out there and be average. Oh yeah, that that that's profitable. That <laughs> that will get you a long way, right? <laughs> exactly. Thanks a lot for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. Um I think we got a lot of really cool stuff uh, on here that uh, listeners will be way interested in hearing. I, r- I really love hearing your stories about James Brown, Prince, and all these other guys. There's definitely more episodes, I think, with my resume that we can talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to do it again sometime, man. Um, you're a legend. I- I'd love to pick your brain more about stuff and... Uh, you know, maybe sometime next year when you've got some free time and anytime you want to come on here and we could record it, it'd be, I think it'd be really cool. And, um, <clears throat> it was a good talk. I actually learned some new things and I, I actually can't wait to listen back to this and, uh, be able to go back over some of the stuff that you said. Okay. Well, good speaking with you. You too, bro. Right on. Thanks, bro. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with the legendary, incomparable Doug Short. On the Kilthrax tour, we kept calling him Doug Shorts with an S at the end because it didn't matter where we were, how cold it was outside, he was always wearing shorts. He is a legendary sound man and a great dude to go on tour with. Very nice, very knowledgeable, and has tour stories for days. I think that I could have Doug on another time, and we could talk about all kinds of different stuff, because he has a ton of info that we didn't touch on at all in this interview. So if you guys would like to hear more from Doug, or if you have any suggestions for people to get onto the podcast as guests, please hit me up at podcast at riftsordie.com. And don't forget to write in with your advice, your wisdom. I want this place to be a hub for wisdom that we can share with the rest of the world. Please send it over to me. Again, that's at podcast at riffsordie.com. I will talk to y'all very, very soon. Toodaloo!